Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt and Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. Hello, everyone. Good evening. I have a package. I see that. I have a package. Welcome, everyone. This is the H2O Podcast. My name is Jason Hunt. And I am Timothy Hermey. And shall we do an unboxing before we do anything Why, else? let's do. Uh, do we want to do this or we want to do superhero stuff first? Superherostuff.com. Let's okay. do that first. 10% off your order when you use the promo code sci for me 10 and now let's get to the unboxing. For those who listen to this as a podcast later, we have to have the sound effect. Your your U- standard U.S. Postal Service priority mail, you know, envelope yes. for book, book size. Right. All right. So we have a a book. What's that right there? It is called Lord of Order. And it is by an author named Brett Riley. I've never mm-hmm. heard of this, this gentleman. Uh, professor of English at the College of Southern Nevada. Hmm. And... Okay, that's long hair, not a hood. Okay, so he's... Mm-hmm. It, it looked like he was wearing a Jedi robe for a moment. Some photos are... Now, it's black and white, yeah, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a... It's an advanced reading copy, yes. so sometimes you don't necessarily... He grew up know. in southeastern Arkansas, earned his Ph.D. in contemporary American fiction and film at Louisiana State University, published author of a body of short fiction and the ghost thriller Comanche. Aha! Um, I don't know if we've got Comanche coming or not. I don't think we do. This was called Lord of Order, and it is a novel, it says here, the Purge is here. New Orleans must die. That's the. That's I have the, friends in New Orleans. I, I, I'm, I'm already not on board with this plot. Brett Riley's stunning new dystopian tale marks him an author to watch. Apocalyptic tour de force. In this highly anticipated second book, Lord of Order, Riley takes readers on a chilling. Chilling, it says. Dystopian ride through a dark and distant future New Orleans. Set long after the destruction of all electronic technology, the novel takes place in a world ruled by the bright crusade of fundamentalist Christian theocracy. Gabriel Troy is Lord of Order for the New Orleans Principality. For years, he and his deputies have fought vigilantly to keep their city safe from the crusade's relentless enemies the Troublers, who are heretical guerrillas who reject the Crusades' rule and the Church's strict doctrines. When Troy's forces succeed in capturing the Troublers' local leader, the city has never felt more secure. We know that this is going oh, to go very yeah. badly. That's just, you know... Uh, let's see here. <clears throat> Alarming intelligence leaks from Washington. Supreme Crusader Matthew Rook Plans to enact a purge, the mass annihilation of everyone deemed a threat to the crusade. He orders his forces to round up all but the blindly loyal 
and march them to New Orleans. Once the prisoners are chained inside, the Crusaders plan to wall off the city and destroy the levees. The resulting deluge, like the biblical deluge of Noah's time, that was worldwide, not just in a it, technicality. Uh, like the biblical deluge of Noah's time and Hurricane Katrina's havoc of ours will kill everyone inside. Forced to choose between the crusade and the city he has sworn to protect, Troy and five other conflicted conspirators prepare for battle, fully aware that the impending Armageddon will demand horrific choices, test their faith, and require them to join forces with their enemies. Like Gideon. So, interesting. Um, I'm trying okay. to figure out the logic of the plan, though. Marching everyone to New to Orleans. Or well, I mean, a we march consider... is going to take a long time. Yeah, well, and the other thing, too. I mean, I can see why you would put New Orleans in as your, as your destination, because, you know, the... the the flooding that happened here during Katrina, right. well, not here, but the, the flooding that happened in Katrina with the levees broke, it makes sense that that would be something you'd incorporate in, and that would be, but yeah, it's okay, so we'll, we'll look forward to adding that to the pile, and we will... We I will think the, the elevator pitch for that would be kind of like um, something akin to, oh... The stand meets the Handmaid's Tale. Sci-Fi Snob says that's one way to get rid of Twitter. <laughs> Just okay. So now I have to actually consider reading this book because uh, I yes. have been known to consider the thought of. Um, Robert in the chat says, "By the way, this week, Doctor Hinshaw, notwithstanding, a friend is coming over to watch the last two episodes of Raised by Wolves with me." I get uh, uh, Sci-Fi Snob has been watching Raised by Wolves and has recommended it. So. Um, I've watched one episode so far. It's it's one of those things where it's on my list of to just sit down and watch because I'm I'm intrigued by it. I've heard a lot of good things. Yes, and Snob says two year wait for season two. Apparently, that's how it's so, running for some so of these funny. shows. So, I mean, you look at something like Westworld, which had yeah. a gap. We had uh, Game of Thrones, of course, had significant gaps in between episodes. Production time, of course, for COVID has disrupted a lot of schedules. Yeah. So the good news is is that we get a lot of these shows that are actually done. Aside from the stuff that you can do on your own. Yes. Stop says that Raised by Wolves is the best sci-fi show out this year. So on one hand, that's good. On the other hand, how many other sci-fi shows do we have out this year? Well, that's that's a that, that's not that's not a that's not a slam. It's it's yeah. an it's an unfortunate state of affairs. Um, but I've heard great things about it, so I think I'll take that as Mrs. a high level. Mrs. Boss Engineer, could you do me a favor? And dial our levels down just a smidge. I see a lot of yellow there. So just kind of just a couple of points, just a little bit that just to be on the safe side. Sure. Of course, the, comparing things like Raised by Wolves to, say, Walking Dead the World Beyond, uh, world world size difference in... in yeah. Well, and it's it's one of those things, you know, you get into this, like this this book here with the apocalypse, you know, all electrical technology has been... The great EMP. And we've talked about, you know, the dystopian futures and, and whatnot, and I talked about it a little bit on, on Live from the Bunker a while back. I'm tired of dystopia. I don't want any more. They've been done to death. 
Let's try something else. Well, if you're gonna do one, if you're gonna do one, do one that at least is unique. Uh, there's a comic book out right now called The Undiscovered Country, and I want to say, I want to say Scott Snyder, but I'm probably wrong. I'm trying to remember who I can't remember who the author is off the top of my head. Mm, that's a good question. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting dystopian. Um, Riff, riff on the dystopian idea because it's bonkers. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things about it that are just odd, and I'm like, okay, at least you know it's engaging me because at least it's different, <laughs> as opposed to and and, and it, this tie, it does tie into our topic tonight. Yeah. Um, the what they're doing over on on Walking Dead: The World Beyond, because there's a lot of very very talented young people and some fine actors on this show, and you've seen every single frame before. And there's nothing. Uh, maybe the show's going to surprise me, but right now it's it's not original. But it's really the young adult version of the Walking Dead universe, mm. told from primarily from the perspective of these teenagers. Yeah. And and one of the things that you see in in a lot of modern science fiction that's geared towards younger people is the dystopian thriller. You look at the Hunger Games or Divergent. Divergent or all these things. These are targeted at younger readers, and and this is to some degree it's a gateway to bringing them into the larger genre. But they all tend not all of them. And this is what I'm kind of hoping that the folks here who are watching our show tonight can can weigh in on because yeah. I had a really hard and I deliberately didn't look this up because I didn't want to sit there and go oh there's this series that I haven't heard of or I haven't read. Is there are not a lot of science fiction novels that I'm mm. thinking like, that spring to mind that are coming out for younger readers. Yeah, most of the YA is fantasy. Right, and there's nothing wrong with that because it's also it's a gateway to a larger universe of storytelling. And there's well, some fine young adult fantasy out there, some wonderful stuff. It, and I was thinking about this earlier, and and the the idea of. Um, titles that you could recommend and I, I was thinking is there anything in the modern would you recommend modern stuff or would you go back to the classics because for science fiction like you say there's not a whole lot in terms of things that might interest a teenager um, but then in the fantasy stuff I mean there's there's a ton of it and it's all YA and you can you can incorporate you can put it into a very a lot of different lists um, we are joined by junior office dog hello junior office dog who is uh, hi how are you making a little pest of herself but that's okay I have cats I'm small animals making pests of themselves mm. is the story of my life. So anyway, but yeah, the but yeah, like you said, it's it's better for us to go off because there are a number of things. We were reading. Uh, there was a, a, a we had an obituary on on Saturday for a young adult author, and I had never heard of any of the book series that she'd written. But they were all YA, and it was all fantasy. There was one science fiction series, but most of it was all fantasy. And I thought I've never heard of any of this. So, yeah. And, and I know this comes as a surprise, folks, but these are not books that are targeted at Jason and my age group. <laughs> no. We are somewhat out of the young adult years. Couple yeah. of couple of three <clears throat> decades. Yeah. Well, and Sci-Fi Snob says you can't be a true Sci-Fi Snob unless you read the classics. Well, I, I, think, I think that 
To some degree, that's kind of true, mainly because, um, and I say this with, with the full knowledge that I'm going to sound like the grumpy old man, but there are... Hold on, folks. I know this is a shock. <laughs> Brace yourselves. To me... Starting with Harry Potter, a lot of YA fantasy, and I haven't read a lot of it, but bits and pieces that I've read, and reviews that I've read, and and the stuff that we've got here, and you've got the little description, like I read for this book, and we get a sheet that says, here's what right. this book is about. A lot of it feels very derivative. And it's stuff like you say, when, when you get into the apocalyptic stuff, it's stuff that we've seen before. Right. We've seen this over and over and over again. These motifs repeat. And there's reasons they repeat, okay? They're classic storytelling tropes. And if they're done well, they can be entertaining. Yeah, but if you're going to go with However... classics... However... <laughs> go with the classics. Right. So, uh, and I like your idea of not looking anything up. We're just going to go off of what we already know. And, because and we've, we are rather extensively well-read, for the most part. We like we like we like to believe so. Yes, so we're gonna go through and not just movies, right? But, well, <laughs> but books to read. Because, well, and, and not only that, uh, books to read, but also that because the medium has changed. Right when uh, we were kids, and for really up until and here's the thing again, folks: the internet and and its explosion of this stuff being out there the way that it is is still relatively recent. We, it's easy to forget that in the 90s, the 90s, not that long ago, oh. it, this, kind of ex, this kind of reach, this kind of exposure, web comics are a relatively recent thing. Yes. Um, you are looking at uh, the explosion of digital storytelling, period, archive of their own, um, or, or Webtoon. Webtoon. Oh, all these different things. This is all relatively recent stuff. So the exposure and this free access that kids have, that younger readers have to this sort of thing now, and the range. And you see this now to some degree with DC's doing it on the comic book side. Uh, there's certainly a lot of young adult comics out there, Scholastic, of course, doing their stuff. But DC's yeah. been doing this lately. Marvel's done it at various points, too. DC's done it before. And, of course, earlier in the history of comics, specific things that are targeted towards young readers. Because there's the, there's a every now and again the the industry re remembers that yeah you have to plan for the next generation of readers to some degree because otherwise well, your, your, is, your audience is going to die out yeah and this is something that has come up in conversation a number of times over on live from the bunker when I because I, I have authors come in and we have a sure. conversation we inter you do the interview and whatnot and a lot of a lot of times you know, the with certain authors the conversation circles around to the Hugos. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the participation numbers in the Hugos, now granted, it's a it's a it's an isolated group. Mm -hmm. Some would say it's an insular group. And one thing that we noticed when we did WorldCon in 2016, when it was here in Kansas City, is the fact that a lot of the people that were there in attendance were older. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. Come on. Quit making a pill of yourself. All right, so now. So uh, one of the things that we talked about, and this has come up on, on Live from the Bunker a number of times, how do you 
expand that audience? How do you interest younger people mm-hmm. in the stuff we enjoy? And and that goes for te- uh, television, film, books, sure. all of that. Uh, it, even including, you know, ac- audio and magazines. Oh, right, definitely. Because there are still magazines that are out there. We just had, you know, uh, uh, mag- the magazine of fantasy and science fiction uh, announced that they've got another a new editor mm-hmm. that's coming on board, and we'll start with the the March April issue. And they've been around since what nineteen forty nine. Something like you that. Know, yeah. Asimov's is still out there. I think um, there's a couple of others. Uh, I don't know. Analog is not around anymore, is it? I can't I remember if analog is there or so. not. But you have these uh, these outlets mm-hmm. for stories, for short stories, for novels, and all that. And now with crowdfunding, there's even more of an opportunity to get those those stories out in front of people and generate interest and and build that audience. And you don't necessarily have to go through the traditional publishing right. side of things. But the question always comes up, how do you get more people? And some of this stuff is built in where it's, it's almost, like, for example, the Hugos. Its inherent nature at this point in time is to gear towards adult audiences. Mm-hmm. And when I say adult audiences, I mean... Grown-ups. Grown-ups, not necessarily. And I'm, you know, obviously that's part, of the, that's part of fiction as well, the adult-adult stuff. But they're, they're not designed currently to be a something targeted towards younger audiences. And a lot of the stuff that we think of in terms of the the genre world, I mean, there's this division, which from a marketing standpoint makes sense, between young adult, mm. child, and adult fiction, yeah. you know, and, and, and so, there, I mean, there's, and it becomes down to marketing. You're trying to target this stuff to this younger audience to hope to get them to buy them. But what we found in something like Harry Potter, which was, of course, hugely influential, however you feel about the books, whether you like them or dislike them or, or, or J.K. Rowling or any of these things, all that stuff aside, the fact of the matter is, from a publishing standpoint, uh-huh. from a reaching an audience standpoint, had an impact. gigantic success. Yeah. And it spawned, a, you know, it, the young adult industry had been around for quite some time. Um, but it certainly wasn't the only game in town. You had the Redwall series. You had um, Animorphs. You had all kinds of... There were all these things being geared um, towards... What was the... What was the... the, the dot R, was it R.L. Stein was doing some stuff You've with got, kids? Yeah, it was certainly R.L. Stein and... Uh, and Creep, was it? Uh, <coughs> what was that series of books that he did? Oh, for heaven's sake! For young adults. Um, Goosebumps. Yeah. Goosebumps, thank right, you, yeah. yes. So, I mean, certainly, certainly there's been genre stuff for younger audiences, and... And very successful authors. Very few people, of course, touched the Harry Potter monolith of publishing. And it was kind of a right place at the right time. And to some degree, you can thank that explosion of young adult literature for, I think, where we are now with certainly the fact that Marvel put out a very successful series of movies that have relatively good quality across the line. In fact, across the line, the sheer number of films, the through line is pretty impressive. But that audience for those films, for the folks who aren't comic book readers, a lot of them are the right age to have been reading Harry Potter 
or that series of books. So, I mean, it becomes this thing where you you introduce someone, someone to one part of the genre and open up their, their mind to the possibilities there. And when another thing comes along, they go, but what is this? Yes. Well, and, and the other thing, you know, Robert, Robert in the chat says, oh, to be young again and experience tropes for the first time mm -hmm. and to think George Lucas was unique and original. Which, I'm going to take exception to that. He wasn't. Um, because, well, let me let me back up. He was a great remixer. He was original with THX-1138. Star Wars was not original in terms of the kind of story he was telling. It was swashbuckling. It was Errol Flynn, uh, Buck Rogers, Buster Crab, Flash Gordon. It's it a, it's the well serials of the thirties. It's and 40s. the hero's journey. Yeah, and a lot of Joseph Campbell. Lots history. of Joseph Campbell, and he, he admittedly, I mean, and one of the things that that he did really well was that he took these various things mm -hmm. that he loved, and put them together in something that he didn't think was going to work. Yeah. And you look at somebody, in, and on a completely different part of the genre world, you look at someone like Quentin Tarantino, who all of his films, and he is very open about this, are heavily influenced by the movies that he loves. They're remixes. They're like, take this piece and this piece and this thing over here and give me a shot that looks just like this Japanese film from 1963. Yeah. And you're like... And he produces well, something that's that's Kurosawa, vibrant. Kurosawa was a huge influence on a lot of those guys. Oh, yeah. Well, because Kurosawa was, in many ways, cutting new ground. Yeah. And so you've had... And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, these... the Some of the best things... Superman, the biggest superhero in the world, yeah. the one everybody knows, was not, a, was not original if you sit there and strip off the S. It's pulling bits of Moses. It's pulling bits of, again, the hero's journey. And it's pulling, it's all these different pieces. It's, it's myth and folklore. It's Hercules. It's all these things put together in a, in a blender. And, and, and these two young men sat there and went, let's do this. Yeah. Synthesizing stuff. Now, I've, I've said a number of years now that there are no original ideas anymore. There are just original, like you say, remixes. There are original blends of elements it's how you put these pieces together and when you look at tropes i mean tropes become tropes for reasons because they get used over and over and over again and they're popular in many cases um but the the other part of it the, the thing is you, you when you get into the imitative nature of some of this and it is a get off my lawn type of complaint to hear but i look at social media in general and there is an entire it seems an entire generation that is defined by harry potter and they define everything they experience in life by harry potter and it, i want to shake them and say go read something else Besides Harry Potter, the world does not revolve around Harry Potter and Tumblr. No, it doesn't. But I'll tell you what. The one thing that, that again, I think it was right place and right time. Mm. You can argue the quali various qualities of the books. But one of the things that, that Rowling did well was that the books came out at a reasonable pace and got more and more complex 
with the age of the original readers. They grew up with the They kids grew up the with book. them. And by the time you got to the end of the series, most of those people who were, who were kids when that first book came out were adults. Mm-hmm. And they were ready to deal with adult themes. You get to that last book, because I've read them. Yeah. I, I, I Overall, I enjoyed them. They've got, they got some problems, but overall, they're an enjoyable series. And you get to the end of that, and they're dealing with much more complicated themes. It was a clever way of doing things. Well, and I think Rowling also got a little bit more skilled as she went and I on. And I would agree. With but it worked out that way. And I saw that what you end up with is you end up with growing up with a series of books that came out over a chunk of your life. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a reason that influence exists. Are there other series that have had that sort of impact? Yes, but it's not... We didn't have the, the internet and social media and the spread... So, I mean, you would, it's easy to forget, or it's hard to put these things side by side because it's, it's like comparing apples to jetliners. Um, is that, but, but, they, but they are, there are similarities. When you look at Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. the influence those books had on the people who read them yeah. was huge, but it also didn't have the reach, that, the global reach that you get now. But in, but those folks, I mean, children were named. There are children out there named Galadriel. Well, the other thing before too, the tw- before <laughs> before the twenty first century. Yeah. Well, the other thing too. Robert makes a good point. Young adult is a tiny window of time. You're eleven to fifteen ish. Is that? Uh, it seems like a lifetime. Yes. Mm-hmm. From pers- from in, from inside it. it. No kidding. In the world of publishing, it's a blink of an eye, and then you need a new audience. And like you say, you know, and. And with the Harry Potter stuff, you have the kids that grew up with it, and they're handing it off to their little brother, little right. sister. Uh, by the time they get grown up, now maybe they've got kids, and they're handing it to their mm-hmm. thing. And I'm sitting there thinking, read something else. <laughs> this entire time, I'm thinking, sure, read something else. But it's also a series of books where if you've got someone who is interested in reading... You uh-huh. can put that in, and they've got book after book after book to read. Yeah. Now, I would argue that there are, of course, other authors that do it better. Um, my my course, kid got into Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson stuff. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then there was another there was another series that Riordan did. Um, the, I want to say Lightning Thief, but I don't think that that's right. Uh, no, it's, Percy, it's Lightning it's Thief Percy is the Jackson, Percy Jackson. Percy is Jackson is the, is the Greek characters. And Riordan did a series with, I think, Roman characters. I'm not sure. James has mentioned a couple of the uh, a couple of the that he says he says there are more than there's more than one series. Mm-hmm. The Percy Jackson series features the Greek mythology, but he's got another series that apparently incorporates the Roman mythology. Would you settle down, please, dog? And uh, that seems to have gone over well with with kids of a certain age as well. Yeah, well, but, I think, that, and I think that's one of the reasons you. Oh, see... Egyptian. Les, Leslie ah, said Egyptian. Thank you. Thank okay, you. Um, But yeah, the the other the other part of that too, and and Sci-Fi Snob makes a, a gets us to where I'm eventually going here. Robert A. Heinlein wrote a bunch of YA stuff, mm-hmm. and. It did not go over well with the with the youngling in my house, because uh, I tried to get him to read Space Cadet, because it's 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 a it's a short book. 
Right. It's easy to read. But, you know, kids being kids, you tell me to do something, I don't want to do it. Right? Well, there's that, yes. And so there's that. There's there's uh, Rocket Ship Galileo. There's Have Space Suit Dual Travel. There, there's a number of what they call the Heinlein Juveniles, mm-hmm. which are really good entry points into this kind of thing. Um, we I just reviewed here not too long ago a, a book called Bulletproof, uh, which came out of uh, Critical Blast Publishing. And it's not great, but it's written for the YA, and and it's essentially your lead character in there. He's 16-ish. 18, 16? 16. And he has been genetically altered, and he's bulletproof. Mm-hmm. But he's also autistic. He's on the spectrum. You know, he's he's short attention span. And I'm reading this book and I'm thinking, this is my kid here. So I, I handed it to him and I said, you know, I, you might enjoy this because the chapters are short. And as, as as he's writing this book, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it. Um, I interviewed him. He We talked on, on Live from the Bunker here not too long ago. But he was talking about making this book something so that if you have somebody on the spectrum it's something they could read as well and so you've got these short mm-hmm. these short burst chapters and the thing happens and this is it, it does it's not a lot of detail it's not a lot of uh you know extra everything but it's it it's not a bad book i mean it's it's, it's a fairly good solid story and it's of course the first in the series now because that's what all of them do but if you get into, not necessarily just YA, but uh, you know, Snob would say he looked up why you know YA in in Google in 1984 turned up. I I'm not sure that Google has that right. Well, but no. Animal Farm. I should s- say 1984 is regularly assigned to students in the teenage years. And and if you think about it, while while certainly some of the themes are dark yeah um it's not necessarily written at an it's not the language is not hard to understand and the concepts one of the one of the reasons it's it's had the success it has had and and the power that it's had yeah is that it gets a very good idea of getting those concepts across uh and i think that um I, i i could i the thing is is that part of the problem with the young adult genre is that you have the authors, in many ways, the, the the authors who are successes in that genre, are not talking down to their audience, which right. is good. This is this is fantastic, and it also makes it possible for folks who would sit there and go, "I would never read a young adult novel," to sit there and go, "This is a really good book." You know, it's for kids, right? Ah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and and you know when when the Enola Holmes movie came out. Right, mm-hmm. I got all the audiobooks in the entire series. I was like, let me. I'll, I watched the movie. I thought it was entertaining. I'm like, well, let's see what the let's see what the audiobook is like. Sure. And I was like, this is really good. And I I listened to the entire series because it was well written and entertaining. And it, in the particular case, it had a fantastic voice artist, so it lended to the experience. Yeah. Now let me ask you this: having listened to those books. Mm-hmm. And I know you're not the target audience. You're not a YA. No, I'm not. I'm not person. a teen. I'm not a teenage girl. But which is which is would, the, which is the, the part the core target audience with 
right. boy is certainly enjoying see, it as well. Can you see certain certain books having a better entry point factor as audio over just a book, or does it matter? So there, you listen to a lot of audio. I do. I listen to a lot of audio. I listen to a lot of fiction podcasts and audio books, and. I drove for I drove for a living for way too long. <laughs> it made it really easy to listen to audio, which is great. But so it's interesting because um, the options that people have again is so much wider than we were kids. Mm -hmm. We had audio. We had audio books. They were not actually really meant to be. There were exceptions. They weren't fully produced. They weren't fully like produced. And a lot of them, they honestly, in the 70s, and I want to say through the middle of the 80s, a lot of audiobooks were marketed as being for the visually impaired. Mm. They right. weren't necessarily, I mean, you had radio plays. Star Wars, of course, had its, you know, was on the radio. You, and we listened to, my dad and I listened to it on NPR. Yep. Right? Yep. And, uh, but. I have. I have Star Wars and I have Return of the Jedi. Somehow, I have managed to go this long and I don't have The Empire Strikes Back for some reason. I don't know why. But my Star Wars... What's wrong with you? <laughs> my Star Wars radio adaptation from NPR by Brian Daly, based on characters and situations created by George Lucas, uh, I have on cassette... Mm. Audio cassette. Right? Hey, back... You'd find a player... Back play in the day, cassette. you would go down to the library, and if you wanted to listen to a book, you got them yep. in these big collections of audio cassettes. Um, so... When I had... Uh, was it my junior high? Junior high. I had a real bad case of conjunctivitis. Mm. Bad. I mean, really bad. And I had to keep my eyes shut mm. for a week. Mm. It was grueling because you I had the know. medicine. A week of, it, of lying down, maybe keeping my eyes closed, well, sleeping all I, the time. I well, fortunately, it was in the this. summer, so I didn't have to worry about <laughs> schoolwork or anything like that. But it was one of those things where I was like, because I'm a, I'm a voracious reader at that age. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I, I'm not going to be able to read. What am I going to do? I can't read. I can't keep my eyes. I got to be able to read. So my dad goes to the library. And he picks up a, a slew of old radio shows. Right. And there was one in particular that really got me. And it was Tony Randall was in the cast. Hmm. And it was, I can't remember if it was, I think it was Suspense Radio Theater. And the show, I believe, was called uh, The Thing That Cries in the Night. And it was it was a murder mystery, right? Right. And it was I don't know, like six tapes. It was a long tape, and every time you heard a baby cry in the house, there was no baby in the house. Of course. But every time you heard a baby cry, somebody died. And I'm listening to this thing. And I'm like, this is really good. <laughs> and I got to I don't know the. Third tape, I think, second or you know, third or fourth tape, and I played one side, and I played the other side, and I realized that I'd played them the wrong. I'd had the wrong side flipped. Oh, like, no. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, now it makes sense. So then I went back and listened again. 
But it was it was was one of those things. And of course, you know, you have the Lone Ranger and you've had Adam sure. Costello and right. all of these things. And at one point, I had Who's on First memorized. Oh yeah, because I listened to it so much. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thing you get with NPR with the with the Star Wars adaptations. Right. And unfortunately, NPR generally doesn't do fiction anymore they don't do yeah. like i mean and and they don't have to because there's certainly a lot of other options but when well, i was growing for a up a long time nobody was doing it. right except right. you know you had your audiobooks like you said for the hearing impaired and the, but now you have these full-blown productions right with sound effects and music and all these other things i mean look at what big finish is doing oh big well and and there's because audible i go through my audible account and I go okay what new thing can i have here and there is an entirely new series of audiobooks out now the uh, you know J- the James Axler Deathland series. Are you familiar with that at all? No, you remember it? It's a it's a post-apocalyptic thing, um, and I was never 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 been a fan. But apparently, all the books are getting like full cast treatments now. And I love how like, dismissive he said. Oh, it's a post-apocalyptic. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like well, it's just of course it's post-apocalyptic. <clears throat> it's all post-apocalyptic. But it was post-apocalyptic in the like nineties, in like the late eighties, early nineties. Sure. Uh, so I mean, it was and it was like. Uh, I think I tried to read one book and I was just like, uh-huh, okay. And I set it aside and never picked it up again. Uh, but I mean, there's all the, and there's a whole bunch of like, they've gone back and they've, they've, they're looking at all these series of books that have multiple books in the series and they're doing full cast recordings. And what's interesting for me is I'm looking at that going, yeah, but that book is 400 pages and your all cast recording is three and a half hours. You've cut things yeah. out. Yeah. And it, it's probably what they've cut out is the description, right? So it's, it's, it's sound the effects in the cast, right? Sure. And there's nothing wrong with that. The BBC has done several very, very good and some not so good adaptations of, of books. Uh, they did some, uh, well, there's a version of Good Omens the BBC did, which is like four hours long. Well, they did Hitchhiker's Guide. Hitchhiker's Guide, but Hitchhiker's Guide, of course, is the special case because there's... It was radio first before it, it was yeah, a book, It right? doesn't have, like, it's hard to, to pinpoint the beginnings of Hitchhiker's <laughs> because it, it kind of, like, three different places at the same time because he didn't know what he was doing and, yeah. and missed all his deadlines and all the fun things. And yes, Leslie, my dad was a hero over conjunctivitis and algebra. But I think that, but the, the answer to your question is... Um, the looping back around to that question is that the audiobooks I think are definitely an in for a certain kind of listener, a certain mm-hmm. kind of reader. Because if you can if you can take the time, if you can do the thing that doesn't require that part of your brain that's listening to get distracted. Audiobooks and, and podcasts are wonderful ways to get introduced to a certain this genre or that genre, yeah. uh, fiction or nonfiction. The problem is, is that for some people, myself included, is that if you have to be using your brain to do this important thing, yeah. audio can become background noise. And while that's fine, I'll do that with YouTube sometimes. I'll like mm-hmm. put in like a you know the um, cinema sins right. I'll run this yeah. stuff in the background yeah. while I'm working on something else because like I'm I'm listening for the funny line right. When I am editing video, I can't even listen to music. 
much less any kind of uh, dialogue or narration, because I have to hear the audio mix in the piece that I'm editing, whether right. it's a, mm -hmm. a TV commercial or a web video or something that we've got recorded here mm -hmm. or something. And so I'm, I'm not able to bring in other things. And it's frustrating because I've got a lot of good music that I'd love to listen to, and I never get a chance to listen to it because I'm always editing. Well, and the good news is for me is that because when I was starting to listen to all these things, I was driving, and the way my brain works, and I can't mm -hmm. speak for anyone else, is that it, I'm quite capable of paying attention to the noise of the road as well as the visual of the road and still listen to dialogue. Yeah. And not have an issue. I mean, we listen to the radio in the car, right? We've managed to train ourselves to, to do that, right? Whether it's a talk radio or music. So, and I know some people have, have problems with that too. It's not everyone, it's not easy for everyone to do. But I think that for a certain, a certain audience, and certainly for a younger audience, I mean, I would definitely say that if, if someone likes to listen to stories... And I think that's something that I, I'm one of the reasons I'm really happy that audiobooks are, have had the, are in that period of success they're in right now, mm -hmm. and podcasts are, is because storytelling with the vote with the sound of the words, we've been doing that as long as we've been people. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. it's hardwired into us to tell it. The, the uh, what is it? Uh, the storytelling ape we've been referred to more than once. Uh, from there's just there's these different ways. You know, storytelling is built mm -hmm. into the human condition, and so the idea that we have this time right now where, and and as parents we tell stories to our children. Yeah, and so I think that for younger audiences, something like the Enola Holmes books, um, or Harry Potter, or anything else that's maybe geared towards a simpler kind of language, not necessarily simpler concepts. The Enola Holmes books, right off the bat, uh, deal with a young woman who is put in a really terrifying position for a child. Mm -hmm. Your mother has disappeared. You're on your own. You are being, you know, the, the, you're being ripped away from the only life you've ever known by people who you're related to, but you don't know. It doesn't matter that one of them is Sherlock Holmes. You don't yeah. know. You haven't seen him in 20 years. He, you, no, you've seen him when you were a baby. You're, it's just, I mean, it's yeah. just things. And and yet, the language that she uses, and I think, the, the, the again, rolling in the early days of, of Harry Potter, the language that she uses speaks to the kind of storytelling that you can read to a younger reader and have them be engaged with it. Mm -hmm. um, now, unfortunately, like I said, I cannot think of, and, and we have a lot of people on the chat tonight, <laughs> I cannot think of a really good young adult science fiction series. And I, there, I honestly think there should be one out Not there, right? Modern. Not contemporary. Yeah. I mean, well, and, and Robert earlier asked, you know, what would, what would be the modern, like right now, cultural touchstone that we got with Harry Potter? Do you, what would be the modern equivalent of something like Harry Potter, and I, right off the top of my head, I'm thinking I I can't think of one. And I, I I agree, and I will tell you why I think that is. It's that because at the time, while there were other authors out there writing fantasy and and for for younger audiences, mm -hmm. there weren't that many of them. Now, if you were to go walk into a Barnes and Noble or your bookstore of choice and go look in the young adult section, 
you would find a ton. And this is great, by the way. This is not a complaint. You would find a ton of authors, most of which you might not recognize. But they have an audience. And they pro some of them have dedicated and large audiences. But because we're not the target audience and we're not going in there to pick it up. Yeah. Um, I got super excited when uh, the amazing Maurice and his Educated Rodents, which is a, which is a, a Terry Pratchett young adult novel, is, coming, is getting a film version from his daughter. Hugh Laurie is cast as the amazing Maurice. And my, my Terry Pratchett fan minds out there and went, perfect! This is perfect in every way! And, and I got really excited about it. And this is, and, and there's a series that, that Pratchett wrote called the Tiffany Aching series, which ties into his larger Discworld series, but you don't have to read the Discworld books to read them. Right. And they're beautiful. And the last book he wrote before he passed away was the final Tiffany Aching book. And it's strictly speaking not finished because he didn't write the end of the book. The book ends at a great point, but it was not his planned ending. He had a little bit more he wanted to tell in that story. Yeah, Robert says, Blackadder finally meets Terry Pratchett. That, yes, yeah, actually, you know, that's, uh, uh, it, it's, that's, that doesn't describe The Amazing Maurice, but, although, no, I tell a lie, that's not too far <laughs> off, um, but, uh, but yeah, definitely, Hugh, Hugh Laurie was in, in the, the Blackadder series, for those of you who have not seen Blackadder, not for children, but definitely worth checking out. Now, let me, let me ask this, because Sci-Fi Stop makes a point that he was in the library looking at YA novels. Mm -hmm. And his review of titles and, and descriptions and, what, and whatnot, there seems to be nowadays, and we talk about the proliferation of YA, and we talk about the Hugos, and the, the proliferation of, for lack of a better word, identity politics. The selling point of a lot of these is, oh, there's... A, a gay lead character or a trans lead character. It's not sold on the on the merits of the story so much as the characters that are in it. And I I wonder. On the one hand, it do, it probably doesn't matter to the story. And and if it doesn't matter to the story, then why make a point of it? But on okay. the other hand, <laughs> on the other the hand. There is the question of you have these teenagers that are trying to figure themselves out. Sure. And do I see a character like me? Do I not see a character like me? Identifying with the character in the story and how that, that speaks to you. Sure. Yeah. How much of that is a critical component? How much of it just is kind of an oh-by-the-way factors into it. Well, it depends on... It, and, it, and, and has that impacted the proliferation of YA? I'm sure it has an impact. So as, as speaking from someone who was inside the book industry for 15 years, right? As a used book, in the used book world for five, the retail book for 10. Yeah. What an author sets out to do with their book and how the publisher markets it are completely different things. Yes. So, if you happen to have a... If you are someone who has written a story where you've got a gay character, a trans character, um, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, however you have written your story, you set out to tell your story. Yeah. And 
Some of them are going to come in with a specific agenda they have. Some of them are going to just, they want to tell a good story. Some of them have a particular point to make. Some of them are going to be the point of this book is the fact that it's a Native American, you know, teenager. Right. That's that is the point of the story. That's that's and and so it depends on what the author is trying to do. Once the author has done their thing, and it gets in the hands of the marketing, gets department. in the hands of the marketing department. It all Hello. bets unless unless they're an established writer. Yeah. If you're a new writer, you've got no control. Although, well, and this is something, mostly. and this is something that has been uh, that's come up in conversation with a number of authors, and it goes all the way back even to my interview with Ann Crispin a few years ago when her her Pirates of the Caribbean book came out. Mm-hmm. Because she had written the Han Solo trilogy, right? Yeah, you know, his his prequel origin story, mm-hmm. and because of that, they approached her to do Jack Sparrow's origin right. story. Unfortunately, she was only able to write the first book before cancer got her, and she passed away. And but I did have a chance to interview her, and I've talked to Cat Rambo, I've talked to Brian Thomas Schmidt, I've talked to a number of different authors over the last couple of months about this. The the responsibility, the onus of marketing your story has fallen a great deal more on the shoulders of the authors than the publishers. The publishers have their marketing department and they have their budget, sure. but they're only going to spend so much money on a Stephen King book, not Stephen Tobolowsky or you know whatever. It, nobody's ever heard of you. You have to market your book. We're not mm-hmm. going to spend a whole lot. So the 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 burden of marketing the book is now the author's burden to bear more than anything else. So when you get into the author had a specific thing to do in this book, whatever that is, the marketing of it would seem to tie you. Maybe there's better opportunity to actually market the book the way it's supposed to be. Well, I don't know. I, I, one would, I think it varies. I think it is going to vary. And I think that one of the things you have to bear in mind is that publishers are going to do what they do because they think there's a way to make money doing it. Yeah. And it's the the kind of movies we get, the kind of books we get, the kind of TV we get, the kind of magazines that are on the shelves, they all exist because someone sat there and went, if we put this out... X number of people are going to buy it, and we're going to make X number of dollars. That's how the industries work. Right. And whether you like it or not, <laughs> I mean, art. Uh, we've more than once the concept of I want to make movies as art, and yeah. so they go, "That's a lovely thought." Yes, but and 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 you do that, but don't think that you're gonna. You know, the well, odds it's like, are. It's like George Lucas. Yeah. I want to make independent movies. I want to make art movies. I don't want to be part of the studio system and what happens. He becomes the studio system. He redefines the studio system. And uh, but the other thing, RJ makes a good, good, a good, asks a good question in the chat. Does the lead character, or any of the characters, do they necessarily have to be identical to you for you to identify with them? Because there are a lot of people that sit there and love Superman. And they don't look like Superman. Right. Well, the answer's no. But I think that you have to... We've, we talked about this to some degree on an, on an upcoming episode of a show you haven't seen. You may have only seen one episode of. Um, and well, there's that, only one out. That's right. But Foreign Bodies, we've, we've recorded some episodes. In, uh, and, and one of the things that I talk about in one of them is that I don't care how good the special effects are in a horror film. No. I don't care how cool the monster is. If I can't identify in some way 
with the characters and stuff. If I, if I can't care about them a little bit... Yeah, you have to be able to sympathize with it them. It just... The movie doesn't work for me. It's like I, I give an example uh, often of The House of a Thousand Corpses, Rob Zombie's first horror film. It's got... The, the, the last ten minutes of the movie are bonkers and nuts, and I was and I was like, this is really interesting. Unfortunately, there's, a there's an hour and ten minutes ahead of that which bored me out of my mind, and I couldn't wait for the characters to die. I had the same problem with the Hostel movies. All the fans of Eli Roth, you know, I, the host, I can't stand the characters. Yeah. And so I start rooting for them to die. <laughs> and not in a, I want to see the cool effect, it's right. just I want to get this moron off my screen. Yeah, get it because, over with. Because there's, you know, these dumb people got to die. So you have to relate. And, and, um, and, and here's an example. Um, the, the movie Strange Days... Okay, an example, uh, Ray Fiennes Ray and Angela Fiennes. Bassett. Yeah. Angela Bassett. Okay. Fantastic film. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It blew under the radar. It had a terrible ad campaign. It had a worse ad campaign than, than uh, John Carter did. Um, and That's hard to believe. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, the yeah. trailer was so bad. No, okay, it's on par with the watch trailer. Okay, okay. it's terrible trailer. Anyway, and one of my favorite films, my favorite characters in that film is Angela Bassett's character. I am not a beautiful black woman. What? It's, I know it's a shock. <laughs> um, but her character in that film, there's so much depth to what is it. Not, she's not the main character. Yeah. Ray Fiennes is the main character. She's his the, the one of the primary supporting characters. She's essentially the, the female lead. But it's his story. Mm. But her character is so interesting because of the way that she presents, the character presents themselves to the world versus who they are, right? And so for all the things that are going on with him, every time she's on screen, she's electric. And I'm looking at this film going, more Angela Bassett. Okay, <laughs> she engaged, and so, so I can relate to that film because then there are certain parts of her character that are very much... Can, a lot of people in just in life can relate to, to aspects of her character. Right? Sure, so her it's an experiential her, thing more than it is an identity. Thing. Right, and her personal story is 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 very compelling. Yeah, and so I mean that's you know you can have these characters who don't like you, but their character, their experiences speak to you and connect with you. And really good writing and really good character development, you can get that on a lot on a larger spectrum. Mm -hmm. The problem with young with stuff often written for younger audiences is that because you are not necessarily going to give them as complicated storylines, right. you're going to streamline some of that. And not every author does. This, I'm, I'm speaking generally here. So you're talking creative shorthand like we've To some degree creative shorthand. Things, yeah. And to some degree there's nothing wrong with that. If you look at the Goosebumps books, for example, hmm. which are geared a little bit younger than, than young adult. I mean, they're, they're more... Queens. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, if you look at the horror in a Goosebump series versus, say, Clive Barker. Right. These are different countries. <laughs> these are different countries speaking different languages yeah. in different centuries. I mean, they're, you know, but the, but the thing is, is that they're both horror and they both speak to, you know, but the horrors of a, of a 12-year-old or a 9-year-old are going to be vastly different um, well, maybe not. Um, well, of somebody by, by in their degree, yeah. of their twenties or fifties yeah. or, or you know. So so as as we wrap up here, what you're? No, I have a question. You have a question. Oh yeah. Oh, you have <laughs> by your, all means, sorry. You have your, your button. three. 
three. One, two, three. Three's already pushed down. Yeah, you, you gotta push it to let it up. And then it's on. So yes, you you have a question. Mrs. Boss. I have a question. I've been sitting and thinking because I know that they talk, someone had mentioned in the chat the lack of science fiction for young adults. Right. And I'm wondering, because I've been doing book reviews, with, do you start, are the books written in such a way for, I mean, you have young adults and then you have like the Arl Stein, which is younger than that, you know, the tweens and stuff, starting in the high fantasy because of their mental level and they're already coming up with this, slowly bringing them up into more regular fantasy, urban fantasy we've talked about, the dystopian because they're teenagers at that point. Sure. With the young adult and then slowly introducing them because as my understanding, science fiction is something that could actually really happen, but put in a different, you know, you, know, you look at that, but by the time their minds have gotten past the teenage years, the science fiction is more, their brains can better process it because I'm reading the Hunters, the Alien Hunter books, yeah. and I'm on the third one. And I've mentioned it's like taking the science fiction and aliens and putting it into a John, or, uh, uh, yeah, John Grisham book. Oh, okay. Because well, at that point, you don't have too many young adults who might be able to handle a John Grisham book. But by the time they get older, I mean, is it that evolution? I'm, from I'm not sure. Fiction? I'm not sure that fantasy evolves into science fiction so much because when you have fantasy, um, it is uh, usually it's a completely new world. New creatures, elves, hobbits, orcs. I think I think there's a conversation going on in the chat amongst themselves. Yeah, that's right. Which is fine. Talk that's amongst fine. yourselves. By all means. No big wolf. Uh, but fantasy, I, I don't want to say it requires a, 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 a more of an a, of an imagination, but fantasy, you have to be able to wrap your head around walking, talking trees, for example, with the ants, um, wizards, magic. And oh, yes, it's fairy tales. Yes, to some fairy degree. tales. Yes, kids can do that. Um, I think it depends on how much world building that you get into between fantasy and and science fiction. Because mm. some science fiction, like like uh, uh, Snob is saying in the ch in the chat, Robert A. Heinlein's Juveniles are science fiction. They're spaceships and ray guns and rocket ship to the moon and we're fighting Nazis on the moon and it's you know it's that kind of thing and it's not fantasy it's science fiction and it, there's just enough science-ish for it to be and science fiction and unfortunately I think that, that the, well the juveniles are really the Heinlein juveniles are very very entertaining especially for us when we grew up with them yeah they're dated in terms of the science enough now that I think they they may not, and I don't know. I would I would love to be wrong, and maybe maybe if you have kids and you've exposed them to the Heinlein juveniles and they enjoy them, fantastic. <laughs> but I also great. think that they're also speaking. There's there's a simplicity to the science 
of things we didn't know at the time, things yeah. we thought were correct or turned out to be. Um, but there's there's still engaging stories, and I think that they're definitely a way to get younger readers because because Heinlein was writing characters who were both boys and girls, and and however you feel about some of his later novels. And you had the younger and the older because you right. had the professor, mm -hmm. you had the teacher, you had somebody. And quite frankly, there was a whole there, were, there there was a time when there were a lot of books with science fiction elements that were aimed at younger readers. Mm -hmm. And some of this actually was coming out of people wanting to encourage younger people to, I don't know, be interested in science. Who would have thunk it? Well, and of course, this was this was post-World War II. Yeah. A lot of this stuff came out, and there was actually, it was a it was a legitimate drive in the country to encourage our kids to become, uh, you know, because there was Cold War going on. Well, and I wonder, too, if how much that has a factor as well, because, and this is something that we've talked about completely unrelated to genre, you know, science fiction fantasy, but this idea of kids these days, yeah, if you want to if you want to get into that generationally the idea of doing what it takes to get things done, uh making sacrifices because you look at the history of of the United States. And you have, at various points in our history, you have major conflicts. Mm -hmm. You know, going all the way back to the Revolutionary War, you have the War of 1812, you have the, the Civil War, you have World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, Korea, all, all of those things. And they happen probably at semi-regular intervals. The last major conflict that we were involved with was Gulf War, which has now been how long? Decades. And it has me wondering, and don't get me wrong, I am not looking for a major conflict here, all right? I, it's not something that I would relish or invite, but... It does have me wondering, and, and given the research into the generation that is wired into these devices and suffers more mental and emotional health issues because of that, that instant gratification stuff. I've got a friend of mine, I've mentioned her before, Dr. Jean Twenge, who is a professor of psychology out at San Diego State University. And she has been studying this for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And finds a correlation between being wired in and wanting it now, 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 and not being able to get that sometimes and creating this, this sense of entitlement. And when you don't get what you want, then it causes issues. Sure. And, you know, we've seen the memes, you know, the 18-year-olds who want the safe spaces and the 18-year-olds that are storming the beaches at Normandy and the comparisons between the generations of what they had to deal with. And it has me wondering whether or not that piece of history has that much impact on our culture that it affects what kinds of stories we tell. I don't doubt that it does. I think that one thing that, while I, I can't say I'm unconcerned about the 
And we, we're at that weird place, right? Because we're, we grew up with a lot of this technology. Yeah. It, and it came along when we were in our, we were past our, really our formative years, right? We're in our 20s when a lot of this stuff, and 30s when this stuff came out. And we've, we're still, you know, it's been, it hasn't been that long period of time. So we are, we're middle-aged, but we've experienced these things. But we didn't get it when we were very, very young and our brains are developing and things like that. Right. And yes, yeah, so it is going to change. But I also remember, and history is probably going to prove me wrong, but the future will probably prove me wrong. I, I hope not. But there were people when radio came out who said, this is going to ruin the minds of our children. This is going, this rock is... Rock and roll. Well, yeah. that, I, mean, I mean, that prior to rock and roll, just radio. Yeah. And then TV came along. And it was just like, this is, you know, this is this is dangerous. Hmm. And then rock and roll came along. And then, and then, and then Elvis. And then Elvis and the hips. <laughs> oh my God, the hips. And then and then the Beatles. And then and all. Yeah. But the, so the thing is, is that we have these periods where the younger generation changes because of the technology, and the previous generation or generations, if we're if we're lucky enough to have several of hmm. them around. Look at it and go. <gasps> the difference this time, though, is well. I said I probably. <laughs> the difference this time is that you have, and again, this is this goes back to, you know, more ability to diagnose various different things. Sure, and the right. culture is different, and the social media, you know, all of the different aspects of technology, but. The way that social media has invaded almost an entire generation, the idea... I See, Elvis and the rock and roll era didn't give us mental health issues. There were people who were arguing that it was at the time. Well, yeah, but... And certainly there now are fun, we have there were... documentation and studies that show that this stuff actually is well and what's interesting is that and this is a kind of a sideline but there's a there's the idea of too many choices right yeah uh, and you see this with folks uh the, there was i can't remember i can't remember where it's from but it was like it was a study oh, it was uh, a ted talk the guy the guy who had uh um paralysis of choice yeah, yeah. sent me that list yeah that paralysis list. of choice yeah. so basically if you if you don't have experience with a wide range of choices so you come say you come from a, a a country where you have you know there's there's five kinds of cereal all right this is an example right and this is you've grown up this way your entire and you emigrate to the united states and you walk into a grocery store and you walk into the cereal aisle your brain sits there and freezes up yeah. Because you can't choose because yeah, you... There's 50 of there's them. There's 50 of them, and you can't sit there and decide because what is the difference between Frosted Flakes and Sugar Frosted Flakes and Graham Frosted Flakes? What does it mean? Yeah. And and the thing is, is that you're... you're you might pebbles or Cocoa Puffs. You might be incredibly intelligent, yeah. but your brain sits there and goes, there's too many choices and it's you can't processing and you can't you can't handle the, the and and especially if, especially if you are um if you are younger and you're given so many different choices at a time um and especially at a point in your life when 
you're questioning every choice you make. Do well, I do I talk to Bobby? Do I talk to Janet? Do I you know? Not only that, do I go to the whatever it it's, is? It's the instant. Yeah. I you know I I, you, I need to look something up. Google. Well, Google. not, on, not I only that. Something YouTube. Boom, not only that, right if you there. make a mistake, you know instantly too. Yeah. Or no no someone yeah, yes. someone else tells, tells you you made a yes. mistake right away. Yes. So you yeah. don't even I mean so there's there's all these different things and I think that one. Genre fiction, whether it's science fiction, fantasy, uh, um, uh, romance, or comedy, or anything, anything that these 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 kids are engaging with, whether it's audiobooks or or novels or comics, movies, uh, TV. Well, there's nothing. Much, I mean, there's, there's there's plenty of TV for aimed at younger people. Some good or bad. Dustin yeah. was just Dustin was just telling me about a show from like five years ago. He was like, "My kids love this show. Why? Because it's terrible." <laughs> um, but. Uh, most of most of what's on Disney Channel is bad. Qualitatively, ob- objectively, bad. But you know what? Kim Possible's good. The rest of it. But you know what? It, does, it. it doesn't cost any money to make. No. <laughs> the return on investment is huge, yeah. and that's all you care about. All right, so let's uh. let's let's break down. Let's go through here in the last five minutes or so, and let's make some recommendations because you're you're more familiar on the horror side. Right. Is there anything for young people? I mean, there's goosebumps. There's, you, you, there's okay, stuff, so R.L. Stein, and R.L. Stein has written some uh, adult novels as well. And I'd say that for the teenagers, R.L. Stein um, is not necessarily bad. Um, I think that you get Fear Street, things like that, that mm. are, are geared more towards younger audiences. Um, beyond some of the names like that... I'm not as familiar with young adult horror right now. Yeah. And I need to really look into that more because, quite frankly, like I said, with the Enola Holmes books and some of the other things, um, Garth Nix, who writes, um, it's fantasy, but it's alternate England. It's an England of the, of the oh, early okay, 20th century, right. which is essentially the north of the Scottish border. It's magic. South of the Scottish border, it's World War One era technology. Right. Okay. Um, and Garth Nix is a fantastic young adult uh, writer. I, I highly recommend them. Um, and they mix fantasy and, and science fiction and horror. Actually, there's quite a bit of it. The, the horror through line is pretty terrifying for uh, uh, when you think about it. But there are there's not a lot um, that I would sit there and go. These are the folks for young adult horror. Now, for again, for looking at some of these. There's a lot of it in fantasy. Um, the Percy Jackson books are very, very popular. Yeah, Rick Riordan. See, and I was thinking, I, I think James had even said that he enjoyed the, the Percy Jackson stuff more than he did Harry Potter. Well, and I think that it's unfortunate that we have, what, two Percy Jackson movies? That the author of the books has, again, it's an example of you license your story off and the studio does what they want. I mean, he's been very, very clear that he's not a fan of the movies. Robert said he enjoyed his dark materials on TV, Um, which is a new take because they did a movie, The Golden Compass. Right, which which was beautiful. Didn't do very well. But it was... No, his dark materials is... um, Is that Amazon that's doing that now? Is that Amazon or Hulu? Robert, where are you seeing his dark materials? Because I can't remember where. It is. I don't remember either. It's, uh, it's uh, I think isn't a co BBC production. I can't remember. Um, but it's it's gotten fantastic reviews, mm-hmm. and again, it's it's beautifully done, and it's challenging material. But 
Um, it's also challenging material that trusts the audience. And I think yeah. the, the best ones, here's, here's the answer to all of it. The best ones are the ones that trust the audience. And if you're looking for a young, I mean, the, the Redwall series, the Brian Jacques Redwall series, yeah. they don't get the press they did for a while. But, of course, Harry Potter over, over sure. shadowed them. Um, they are a fantastic uh, series to give younger readers. Um, uh, the Garth Nix stuff is probably middle teens, I'd say. HBO. HBO, HBO. Okay. okay. I'd say 14, 15, because yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit them with some, some dark stuff in there. Um, I, honestly, as much as it pains me to say it, The Hunger Games... Um, is I, again, it's it's I'm not a, a dystopian stuff, but it, but honestly, in terms of dystopian stuff for for teenagers, yeah. if you're gonna give them a dystopian novel, yeah. you could do yeah. you could do better. Well, it's better than Divergent. Well, that's true, but still. I, well, I know, but <laughs> but honestly, I would say I honestly would say mm-hmm. give them the books and don't let them watch the movies. All right, so so there is that. Um, we've talked about Heinlein, Have Space Will Travel. Rocket Ship Galileo, Space mm-hmm. Cadet. Isn't there an, isn't there another another juvenile that he wrote? Yeah, you know, like four or five. Oh, is it, it that is it that few? I want to say more. Um, um there's those. Um, uh, Bradbury. Honestly, give him give him uh, something wicked uh, this, this way. way something comes. wicked this way comes. Uh, which I'm still waiting. I mean, it's it's one of my favorite, not terribly faithful adaptations. Yeah. But God, Jason Robards oh. is great in that movie. <laughs> Um, uh, the okay. Ara- yeah, okay. Aragon series. Uh, yeah. yeah and, and Christopher Peretti? Christopher Peretti? Peroni? Yeah, something like that. Um, the Aragon series. The Aragon series. Again, another one. Don't watch the movie. Oh, so yeah. it says there are 10, ten plus juveniles. Thank you. Because, yeah, there's, yeah, there's quite a few. And I think that most of them still <coughs> hold up pretty well. I think that they... I think some modern audiences might find them simplistic, mm. and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. No, well, they're easy to read. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also Sim- say simple is not stupid. No, uh, I would also say that Dragon Riders of Pern mm-hmm. for the older teenagers, because there is a there is some stuff in there that's. Well, and some not of the stuff quite for kids. But some of the stuff I think that if you actually read it to your kids. Um, you know, I, I think that honestly, if you want to, if you want to engage a child with fantasy or get him and get him primed in through that, you know, reading them The Hobbit, sure, isn't no, kind of hurt. No, yeah, uh, reading them The Highland Juveniles. Um, well, here's generally speaking, as a parent, you should read to your kid anyway. Yes, my my personal opinion. You can disagree with me or not, but I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think because you're engaging with the child and you're helping their imagination, and they're going to have questions. There's a reason we all react to the Princess Bride movie the way that we do. <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, um, it's that it's that beloved family member who's reading to you, and 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 that would be another book that you could add to that pile. Okay, except that I would say definitely give them to them when they're an older, older yeah, because older. otherwise they're going to be confused because right. there's a lot there's, there's more to that book than there is in the movie. And there's a lot of there's a lot of humor that is aimed at minds that understand the world in a yeah. broader sense and a lot of kids by the nature of being kids sure, do. Sure. Um, I would also say well, see, I'm looking over here on the shelf at Alas Babylon. And mm. I'm thinking, you know, because I read that in high school. Mm-hmm. It's a good book, um, but 
I don't know that it would have the same impact now that it did when we were teenagers. Uh, I don't think so. The Cold War's over. Yeah, I think I think it's give it's, it another five years when China is the enemy again. Now maybe it'll it'll be it, a little it, bit more applicable. It might but. it might speak to us. I think looking over at the shelf there, there's I can see some stuff not to give them. Don't yeah. give them don't give them Spider Robinson. Not yet. No. Uh, <laughs> si, si, uh, Sixteen on. 15 maybe 16 on I think that, uh, yes, yes 16 on um, I don't know that I'd go that young with, have, have, with Lady Slings the Blue Lady Slings the Booze you give him the short stories first you work up to Lady yeah. Slings the Blues. Um, um, I've got the Star Trek novels back over here I read well those Ender's Ender's Game um, Ender's Game for a teenager I think is, yeah. is fine I think that when you start getting into and, and honestly uh, the my, I, the way I read and when I started reading, I started reading a lot of this stuff a lot younger than most publishers are targeting people. Sure. And that's just because I got lucky with my, my dad instilled me a love of reading and left around things like, you know, Burroughs and, and uh, uh, Wells and, and all these books around and I just started, you know, devouring them. Yeah. My, I, have a, I come from a family of readers. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's some really fantastic stuff. And I think the other thing to remember is that don't think your kids... Figure out what your kids can process at. I mean, yeah. some kids are going to be ready to read Stephen King at 15 and and get it. Yeah, and some uh, won't. And some of them certainly won't. And now, the other, the other recommendation that, I'm going, that I can make, and this is not science fiction, mm. but it is tangential... Because both James T. Kirk and Honor Harrington bear more than a passing resemblance to the character of Horatio Hornblower. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole series of those books about Horatio Hornblower in the British Navy, all the way from when he's a midshipman and all through his career. And it really does give you a sense of... That kind of a character that because James Kirk is is in that same mold. Mm -hmm. Honor Harrington is in that same mold. You get them started on C.S. Forrester with with Horatio Hornblower, that opens up Star Trek. It opens up the Honor Harrington, excuse me, the Honor Harrington series, and it, it's it's a good entry point into that kind of you know not military only, fiction. Not only that, it and it's an easy thing to read. It hopefully will give them a love of history. Yes. Because I think one of the things that a lot of science fiction fans get to enjoy and a lot of fantasy fans get to enjoy yeah. is that so many science fiction and fantasy authors love history and will take you know there's a whole lot of European history built into Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of <laughs> of God, there's so many uh, Dune. We're getting the big Dune adaptation. If you if you understand the politics of the economics of the world and the Middle East and all these things, mm. it enriches your experience for Dune because Herbert loved these things and he wanted to tell people about these things and he wanted to work them into his stories. It, it, it enriches your experience. And if you know the history and and some of these great things you know and and quite frankly reading Horatio Hornblower is going to engage you in a time and a place a lot better than say 
a classical historical novel like say I don't know Moby Dick or oh, or Moby or Dick. even Les Miserables, which yeah. is which has you know the the <coughs> footprint that it has in, in culture with musicals and movies. Mm. The fact of the matter is, is that the book is. 75% politics and 25% story. Leslie said she loved Alas Babylon. I think we read that at the same time in the same class. I think we were in the same class together when we read that. Okay, so uh, Heinlein Juveniles. Mm -hmm. There's uh, 12. Uh, Snob looked it up. There's 12 listed at the wiki, uh, Wikipedia. Uh, Dragon Riders of Pern. R.L. Stein. I'd say I'd say for for horror on the Rick horror Riordan. side of things, uh, yeah, Rick Riordan, uh, R.L. Stein. Um, I would say um, Terry Pratchett's Juveniles for the for the fantasy side of things. Again, more people, more the more people read Terry Pratchett, the better the world's going to be. <laughs> um, but but quite frankly, his Tiffany Aching books are are beautiful, and and the Maurice books are they're all funny, and they're they're the kind of humor that adults get and children get. And you can both be laughing at the same time and be laughing at two different things. No. Robert makes a point, and this, this, uh, uh, we won't get into this tonight because we're already off on a tangent. But uh, he says, I can't wait for the Habsburg Dynasty based sci fi fantasy because now we're going to get back into uh, uh, superpowers, you know, uh, United States, China, Russia, India. Um, he says, uh, think the Game of Thrones brought us a good take on the Hundred Years War, and now we're going to get the Habsburg stuff again as we now get into this new Cold War that's about to be upon us. So, so now that, that's a thought that we can leave you with, right? Yeah, Something that, to anticipate, the new Cold War. But see, now we can, that, that leads us into talking about things like the moat in God's eye, and... We'll leave that for another uh, yeah, there's all kinds of There's all kinds of cool places we can go. All right. That's going to do it for tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for watching. Don't forget, we are on both YouTube and Facebook right now. And I am in the process of updating and getting all of these ported over to BitChute. And apparently, it looks like our performance, our viewing numbers, are better over on BitChute, oddly enough. And we haven't even promoted anything Interesting. over there. All right. So, yeah. And on all of the video that we've done. So, the... New audience, you know, I the guess. Little, the little three-minute Comic-Con updates that we do that yeah, yeah, nobody yeah. watches on YouTube, they've got double digits on BitChute. <laughs> I think it's really cool. I don't well, understand okay. it at all, but I'm not going to question it. So, anyway, that's going to do it for us. Thanks very much for watching tonight. If you have comments, if you have thoughts that you want to share on on YA books entry points for introducing young people in you can certainly if you know in. science fiction more yeah, science fiction we want to know but honestly yes. we do uh, we also have an email address h2o at sci-fi for me.com or you can leave a comment on any of the videos that we've got here you can reach us through the contact tab on our on our website uh, plenty of ways you can get in touch we do like hearing from everyone we read all of the messages uh, so uh, we enjoy that conversation. So share your thoughts with us. Please share us with other people. You know, feel feel free to share the link. Uh, leave us a thumbs up on your way out, and we will do this all again next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Da -da -da -da. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.